the Hollywell Trust podcast testimony series, sharing experiences of those affected by the Northern Ireland conflict and those people who have taken the decision to take positive steps for the future. Now here is your host, Eamon Becker. Hello once again and welcome to the Hollywell podcast series. Today's guest is Julianne Campbell. Julianne works with the Museum of Free Dairy. She will speak about that work and also the work she did on the Unheard Voices program leading to the publication of Beyond the Silence. You're very welcome, Julianne. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the Northwest, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. This is the most peaceful Ireland has been in my own lifetime, which I never realised until last night. And it is, you know, I've, I missed the majority of the trouble. I grew up not really brilliant aware of it because I was too young and it really is this is peacetime to me and I wanted to continue and improve for my daughter and the next generations so at least when I realize that I feel better that this is as, mo- as peaceful as it has ever been but so saying that there are some pockets of unrest obviously still in existence and we can't deny that but I don't think that they're representative of the majority I think that any uh, negative elements now are few and far between and that they're not representative of the wider society and that they don't speak for us. And I think that anybody that's still causing trouble knows that as well, that they're in a minority now. You know, that even though they're continuing with an armed struggle, nobody else is. They know that uh, they're in a minority? I, I think that they know they don't have the support of the people anymore. Yeah. You know, and they're widely condemned if anything happens these days. Yeah. And while it might have been not acceptable, but uh, it might have been normal 20 years ago. It is certainly not normal now, and I, I think um, people won't stand it if it continues. I don't know what we can do to change it, but the the tolerance has gone way down. People won't tolerate it anymore in today's society in the North, mm. I'd like to think. I think people are tired of trouble. It's time to move on and come up with new ways of addressing their needs. And what needs are you thinking of when you say that? Well, there's many needs. Uh, in my line of work, it would be more... Um, the needs of people who are grieving or hurt from the past or suffering some kind of trauma as a result of what happened in the past. That is a very open wind in the North and I don't think we'll have full peace until that's addressed. You know that someone somewhere sits down with families and says this is what happened, this is the truth, here's documents to prove it. You know some kind of truth mechanism, whatever would work here and again nobody ever agrees on what would work here but you can't say you're in a peaceful society when there's people that are still hurting every single day. An open wound, you, you say? It is an open wound. Uh, yeah. And I would find I'm a director of the Pat Finucane Centre too, and I've met lots of families through there and through the oral history work with Unheard Voices, through the museum, Bloody Sunday families. And generally, in my line of work as a, new, a newspaper reporter, there's a lot of people that still need a lot of things here, and they're totally being overlooked. One of the things you mentioned there in terms of what their needs might be is tr- access to truth. Truth. Access to documents that might give them some, shed some kind of light on what happened. 
doesn't have to be evidence, but something that gives them some form of uh, addressing the past, acknowledging what happened to them, particularly, um, I think, from governments. They need to acknowledge what happened to people. You know, yes, you're right, this did happen. Either we're sorry or we can give you these documents to prove it or to reinforce what you think happened. Some kind of some kind of accountability and transparency, which is totally missing. And I don't even think we'll get that in the next generation. I really, really think that the government, the British government, is holding off on cases like this until people die off. And particularly with the Bloody Sunday cases, but across a, a raft of other cases across the north, I think they're just waiting until people either get too old to care or that it's passed on to the next generation. And quite frankly, I don't want that burden. What and not just the British government, our government too. People aren't happy with our government either. The government here in, yeah. in Stormont? Nothing, nothing's working as it should be, but sure, nothing here ever did work as it should. If you if you could, as it were, with a magical wand, a magic wand mm. provide solutions, what would they be? I think I would open all the MOD case files and let everybody have what they want from the Ministry of Defence. So all these secret files everywhere, I would love to see things like that just suddenly being opened. Things that are closed for 25 years, 75 years. Yeah, it's all a very deliberate act of just keeping people waiting there, you know. I would love them just to say, here, there's everything you ever needed to know. Whereas mm-hmm. it takes months and months to get any wee documents siphoned off from in there and mm-hmm. letting families know that there's a glimmer of hope in their case. That could all be very, very more accessible and easier. At least that way the government is holding up their hands and saying, here, we do have information, here it is, and let us deal with it. When I say us, I mean organisations here. I don't mean me personally, I just mean... Organisations like Pat Finnegan Centre, like uh, the Museum of Free Dairy. Yeah, or victims and survivors organisations, anyone that's really seeking the truth. What about victim survivors groups that are focused on what uh, Republican groups have done or what loyalist groups have done? So I think you have to be across the board here. If there's a truth out there, get it out generally. So Republican groups must also... Hmm. Not must, but it would be nice if they did. You know, yeah. it would be nice if there was an even playing field there. And if yeah. the people knew things, come forward and say them. Yeah. I don't think an amnesty would work, because that means we're uh, forgiving everybody for everything they've ever done. But some kind of truth mechanism, maybe like they've done in South Africa. That truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm. Yeah. You know, I watched that. I watched the documentary about it one night, and I was in tears. I don't know if it ever done them any good. But my God, it was a bold move for them to try it. Yeah. You know? But this is a very real and current situation, yeah, and, and the rest of the world thinks we're at peace, but it can't be at peace whenever half the population still taking tablets to cope with what happened in the past. As, as you do the work you do in the um, Museum of Free Dairy and the work you do with Pat Finnegan Centre, you obviously then meet people. Mm. Could you, without naming names, could you perhaps make personal some of what you're saying, you know? Indicate people that you've talked to, listened to, that uh, those are the people maybe that have led you to the conclusions you've mm. just expressed. The need for truth, the need for documentation, the need for openness. And the well, I could name um, I could um, name the the Devaney family for certain because I spoke to both of the Devaney sisters last year uh, in my oral history work, and there was one report ever done on the death of their father, and nobody has ever seen it, but there you see. And even the mammy had never seen this one report that was done on her husband's death. It was never investigated fully. They never had any more information about it. But they know this dreary report is out there somewhere. And yeah. still, 45, 50 years later, 
There's no sign of the family even seeing this. It's probably a two-page report. What is the stated reason for them not seeing this Drury report? It's not in the public interest. It was opened briefly in queue and then closed again because it wasn't in the public interest. Yeah. So yeah. that's one example of a family. That's just one, and I can put their name to that. You know, why yeah. they want to see this Drury report. It's the only official investigation yeah. ever done under their own father being battered in their own home and he died of his injuries. Yes. Surely, of all people, they're entitled to see it. Yes. And their mammy died with never seeing it. And there, are there others, Julianne? Oh, there are many, many others. In my work with Unheard Voices, what came across a lot was the fact that the security forces still need to hide their identity. And I think that's very telling in a peaceful society. That anyone I spoke to who had any connections with the military or security forces would not put their name out there. And they wouldn't any identifying features, anything about where they lived. So there is still that sense of fear that you can't really say what, what your role was in the past. So if we go For fear of retribution, for fear of judgment, for fear of being blamed in some way for things that happened in the past. But that's a very real... I find that in all the security forces that we interviewed was... They'll talk, but as long as you don't identify them. Yes. So that fear still persists. And so you go back to what you said right at the beginning of this interview. Mm. You, you talked about the level of peace. Mm. It's Derry or Northern Ireland at its most peaceful mm. in your lifetime. And yep. yet these things are also and true. And yet all these wee pockets of things still have to be addressed. Yeah. And maybe they never will be. I think until the next generation, security forces won't openly say that they're in security forces. Yeah. I have a friend nowadays who's a policeman and nobody knows else. Yes. You know, he has to keep his job a secret. Now in a peaceful society, that shouldn't be happening either. Yeah. And in any other country in the world it would be a noble noble profession, but here it's it's a guilty secret. Yeah, or uh, it's a secret because I mean I my son Kieran, who's thirty five mm. as a as a contemporary who's a policeman mm. and he said the difference between me and you sitting in the sandwich company I mean, is Somebody could come in and shoot me dead. Mm. They might shoot you as well, just for collateral damage, but me they'll be looking for. Mm. So it's, it's not just a guilty secret, it's a secret about personal safety and is. security. Mm. Yeah. And it is a real threat these days as well, with the odd wee pocket of trouble that we still have left. Yeah. But it can't be allowed to continue, you know, or else we'll never ever have a police force that people can actually trust and lift the phone day and fully play a part in, mm. you know, and I'm, I'm sure it would be quite a noble profession for people if all those barriers were taken down, but again, will that happen in our lifetime, because there will always be a mistrust of them. Mm. And, so and you're a lot younger than me, I know. so in my lifetime, I would guess it's hardly likely. Mm. In my lifetime, I would like to see it, but yeah. I'm, not, I'm not convinced. Yeah, and the work you do in... Uh, oral history in Padfanukin and in the Museum of Free Dairy where you're now employed mm. full time. Mm. How do you see that contributing to the resolution of these challenging issues? How do you see the, the work in the Museum of Free Dairy and the museum itself contribute to peace building? See so I think the museum now is all about education. You know, we're not just uh, there to glorify the past or anything. It's about learning lessons from the past and making sure it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes across very clearly in the narrative that we use in the museum. Even though we're a very, very partisan, one-sided museum, we also explain all sides. In our slideshow of people who died during the Free Dairy era, it was um, both civilians and military, soldiers, policemen, anyone who died in Free Dairy 
you know, we make no distinction. It's people who died across the board. And I really like that about our museum because people are surprised when they see it in there. Oh, you've got soldiers mentioned in there. Of course we do. They died at the same time, you know. Mm. So I like that that we sort of... So it's not entire... You say it's partisan? Or? That's, well, it's a very it's, it's a very dirty view of what happened. It's a people's view of what happened. It wouldn't be the British Army's view of what happened here. Yeah. So it's a story of what happened in Derry told by the people themselves yeah. from their point of view using their artifacts, their documents. So it's a very real living history. Yes, and and the point of it, uh, Julian, uh, the lessons to be learned, what are the lessons to be learned? Tolerance, I think. Maybe tolerance, understanding and uh, respect. Tolerance of, of understanding of? Of other people. Yeah. Of other people's traditions, so other people's beliefs other people's occupations, you know, I just think uh, we have to educate people that what, what happened in the past didn't necessarily work for us, and we have to think of a way ahead, and there is still bloody Sundays happening all over the world, and there is still state forces killing their citizens, so it's obviously not a, a dead issue, it's a very live issue in other parts of the world. John Kelly would talk about the bloody Sunday Museum being place where human rights issues are explored. Yes, I think it's very telling that John Kelly addresses the murder of his brother every single day so publicly. Whereas my mammy doesn't talk about my Uncle Jackie. She sort of, she wouldn't even bring it up if someone else brought it up. But John Kelly goes in there every day and talks about what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened to us afterwards. This is how we dealt with it as a people. And other people can learn from their experiences. I think that's absolutely amazing that that's how he has chosen to deal with his brother's death, is by educating others. Mm -hmm. I think his strength of character is amazing, you know. And I always marvelled at him from far away, thinking, fair play to him, you know. Mm -hmm. And he always makes a point of telling people when they're in, you know, he shows them rubber bullets, plastic bullets, and SLRs that the paratroopers use, and young people can hold these things in their hands and have a real loving sense of the history. And he always makes a point of saying, this museum is not about revenge, it's, you know, it's not about revenge it's about justice and truth for our people and I think it's great it really comes across that it's wider than just a campaign now it is it's educating people on the on the future is there through the past you said uh, just a few moments ago that the, the that the bloody sunny museum is partisan are there people who go into it who are uh, for example, from the Protestant unions and loyalist community oh, yes. who challenge oh, yes. the narrative. Of course, I'm sure it's all the more healthy for that. You know, could you say something about that? If it informs, challenge, if yeah. it informs debate, or if it challenges yeah. people. I know the urban villages is all about that, about cross community people getting together, um, having debates and discussions about what they've yeah. learned. And what do what type of do people from the the PUL community say about the museum? I would think that they think it's very one-sided, which we've tried to address, including soldiers and military, and it's not as one-sided as you would imagine when you read the narrative, you know. It gives a very, very rounded overview, but from the people of the bog side's point of view, yeah. you know. Any Craigan people in there expressing their point of view? Mm, probably. There was an English woman in there last week that busted out crying and apologised on behalf of England which I thought very powerful, and it has happened more than once, that she just felt so bad because she was English. Yeah. And I said, it's not your fault, you know. Yeah. You didn't do anything. But I was really taken aback by it. Yeah. Because she came out all emotional. Yeah. And it was just the guilt of actually, actually being English, which is a strange reaction, but probably one that's quite understandable if you were English. 
Even yeah. talking about their experiences re-triggers trauma for some people. Yeah. In my work with the oral history, we had the same. We had to have fast track services for counselling and all, just in case we reopened wounds that urgently needed help. What what you know? What does that mean, fast track services? Just that we could let the phone to a counsellor if a woman needed it, and we could get them. You know, they wouldn't have to wait six weeks for a referral or anything. Yeah. And that if we hurt somebody or we made them talk about something, it just reopened traumas that they just needed the, some professional help. Yeah, and, and how did you set that up? You obviously had a budget for that as well. Yeah, and there was counsellors on hand from CAMS and stuff. That, CAMS yeah. and Cunef, But that maybe? was very, very important in the Bloody Sunday, in case of Bloody Sunday families, it was Cunef. Yeah. But there's always counsellors on hand, just in case. Yeah. You know, and I think that's very important. And is it this, is in the Free Dairy Museum at the minute, would that still be the case? No, but if we were doing specific programmes around that, that would have to be the case. Yeah. You'd have to have some kind of safeguarding features on there to protect the people yeah. you're dealing with. Yeah. Naturally so. You don't want to upset someone and send them on their way. Yeah. I was very, very, very um, cautious of that in the oral history. Because mm. some people were talking about things they hadn't spoken about in 40 years. Yeah. And then we were just putting on our coats and going. You had to be sure that these people were okay, left there with their memories and their thoughts swirling around their heads after we had reignited it. All my mammy wanted about my Uncle Jackie was for someone to put up their hands and say, sorry, we did it. And that's what she got from the Bloody Sunday Inquiry. Savile? Yep. And, and that's all she wanted. She didn't want for us, she not fussed on prosecutions, not fussed on it. She just wanted someone to acknowledge what happened so they didn't think they were in the wrong. So, so they weren't made out to be liars all these years later. She wanted someone to say, yep, you were right, we were wrong. And that's what happened. And in a majority of cases, I think that would go a great, a great way towards healing people. Wouldn't solve anything, but it would certainly make people feel better and be able to deal with. So that all the protagonists, like uh, the the British state, like uh, mm. the IRA, like the loyalists, if they were to speak far more openly than they currently do, that would be helpful to this open wound. I would think so, but again, how are we going to know unless someone tries it? Savile. Your, does your mother want prosecutions on the back of... She, she wouldn't be out in the streets marching for them or anything, but uh, she wants to see justice done. Yeah. Mm. But she was never fond of prosecutions when we were growing up or anything. She just wanted the truth. Yeah. Someone to put their hands up. Yeah. But now that it's happening, she said, yep, I want to see him in court. She just supports the other families too and wants to see yeah. right, wrongs righted. Yeah. How does Museum of Free Dairy contribute to peace building in our city in Northern Ireland and Ireland, maybe even internationally at this time? Mm, I would think that the bog side and maybe Derry has a, let's say, contentious uh, reputation locally, nationally and internationally. And for someone to come here and see that there's a civil rights museum in that space and know, oh, right, it was a civil rights fight, well, I think maybe People just think that we're badmans and troublemakers here, but there wasn't. It was an actual fight. It was an actual civil rights movement, and there was actual real issues at the core of it. And I think uh, the fact that a building uh, focuses on that can only be educational. So it's demystifying for some. It is demystifying yeah. and breaking it down and letting people realise that this was real, ordinary people involved in a real, ordinary struggle. Like my friends in England would have thought of the bog side as like the Bosnia or somewhere. You know, and they were panicking walking through the bog side, whereas it was just the bog side deals. But their perceptions of it mm. were 100% different and more stronger, more bitter, 
than ours. They had a fear of this place because they'd heard so much about it, mm. propaganda-wise. You know, so I think the museum was sort of breaks down those barriers and breaks down those prejudices of the past. Sort of mm. lets people know, you know, the actual there was an actual real thing happened here, and uh, this is what happened. This is how we've addressed it, and this is how you can learn from it. Is is the the museum of free theory almost like the work, or directly like the work you did on unheard, unheard voices, uh, breaking the silence? It's a mm. it's a way of putting a very powerful narrative out there. Mm. Um, well, I think there's been so much written about uh, Bloody Sunday and Battle of the Bogside and all, all the the events that our museum covers that we needed something from our point of view because a lot of the, the history books were told from a British point of view and they all needed fixed after the Salvo report anyway, you know, yeah. the facts were turned on their heads. So our museum is very, very necessary in terms of getting the history right. You know, this is told by the people it happened to. Yeah and using their artifacts, using their point mm. of view. I think it's intensely powerful and what's more powerful is that we still have those primary source eyewitnesses and all, all around us and well, that's not going to last forever. We have researchers from all over the world saying can I speak to a bloody Sunday eyewitness, can I speak to a battle of the bogside eyewitness, can I speak to someone who was involved in the civil rights campaign and we have the means to be able to put them in touch with those people, which will not always be the case and that'll be a sad day when that happens. Mm. But while we do have those primary sources, we should make the most of them and then you're learning from exactly who these people were. Mm. You know, I love, I love that. I love that it's a living history museum, it's recent history. And as you speak now, you have such energy mm. and you say, I love that, I, lo I love it that it's a living museum. So my final question, I think is, is it hard to work there, you know, given that your uncle is one of the, in fact, is the first victim of the shootings in Bloody Sunday? Mm. Sometimes I would explain to people, you know, the, the, the connection between me and my uncle Jackie, if they're in the room and they're looking at the hanky or if they see a big picture, and I would say, oh, this is my uncle. And But you would sort of use it up to your own discretion if, you know, mm. if you're going to mention things again, you weigh it up, you gauge it with whoever's there, if they would genuinely be interested in that personal connection. But I find very rarely I do it, but when I do, it does, it chokes me up. And I never knew my Uncle Jackie, I, mm. I wasn't even born. But we still love this enigma that we know of, you know, this fabled uncle that we've always heard of. And I think uh, I do have a lump in my throat when I talk about him, thinking, God love him, I can't ever even knew him and I'm talking away about him every day. I think somewhere he's looking down, thinking you're doing a good job. I think I have detached myself slightly because I'm working on there. Yeah. But if I'm left alone in there and I'm walking around in the exhibition space and you can hear those noises, all the audio, and you can hear people singing and then screaming and you can hear gunshots, very, very vivid, very emotional. Yeah. And I find that far more so in the new premises than the old one that is quite eerie walking around. And so it would affect me more if I'm on my own in there rather than when I'm standing talking to people where you have that sense of detachment. Yeah. But on my own, I would get caught up on it. Quite you don't wake up in the morning, go and say it's Thursday morning. I don't want to go there today. No, I do not. Yeah. I think it's a valuable, valuable, positive thing we're doing. Yeah. I don't think it's dwelling on the past. I think it's learning from the past. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's a real difference. Uh, no, I think I'm happy going on there every day. This podcast is funded by the Central Good Relations Fund, the Reconciliation Fund of the Department of Foreign Affairs. Uh, core funded by the Derry City and Strabane District Council and the Community Relations Council. 
Thank you very much for appearing in the Hollywell podcast series. If you've missed any of these podcasts, you can catch up with them on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher.com. Thank you all very much. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Team.